Well, I met Daryl. He was 16 years old. And um, I actually was his spiritual mom before I was his mother-in-law. So I tell Bethany, I said, you know, I tell people I was his mother before I was his mother-in-law. She goes, don't tell people that. <laughs> that doesn't sound quite right. <laughs> like I married my brother. <laughs> but um, it's true. God knit my heart together with this young man's heart. And um, I thank God for the opportunity to get to know him and this ministry. And I'm so proud of him and Bethany and Will and the whole team and what God has done here with you guys. And I'm, I'm thankful that you invited me to come and share. I'm concerned that I'm going to knock that off. Can I put it right there? Will it pick me up if it's right there? That's fine. Because when I open my Bible. Okay, cool. Is that right? That's great. All right. Um, I was giggling because when Daryl talked about the train of his robe, you know, filling the temple and that his train, um, that's what I want to share with you today. This is really amazing. Um, I'm going to share some of my testimony about how God got a hold of my heart and how I ended up doing what I'm doing today. But I'm going to weave it in and out of the Word of the Lord. So I'm just going to share with you um, Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm going to read that and then we're going to start. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 6 and I'm going to read verse 1. Give you a second to get there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and his, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, and two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another say, said, and said, Holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door was shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people who are of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which was taken with the, tong from, with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ways heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and their hear, hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. What I want to share with you today is this, is that as a church, and I mean the church, and I'm not talking to my church, I'm not talking this church, but as the church, we have not yet heard the Spirit of God say go. We haven't heard it. And the reason I know that we haven't heard it because the things that I teach, the things that I share from the Word of the Lord about going are foreign to a lot of people's ears. But when you read the Gospels in the book of Matthew 28, when the Lord said, I give you all authority, go, go, we don't go, we wait, we stay, we hang out with one another. We pray, we worship, which is good, but we don't go. Because we haven't understood yet the heart of the Lord. And what happened was, I speak about myself right now, not any of you in this room. I was a youth pastor for 10 years, and during my youth ministry days, my heart was so broken by the concept of youth ministry and kids, and they wanted fun, and they wanted um, hanging out, and they wanted a girlfriend and a boyfriend, and they wanted you know, all the things that they wanted youth group to be so that it kept them in the church. And I remember at one point in time just thinking, God, if it's not fun, if it's not new, if it's not exciting, it doesn't keep them. So that means we're really performing to keep people engaged. And I said, God, until there is an encounter with you, 
that changes someone's life so radically and they no longer need outside stimulation, they no longer need someone to pump them up, get them going, but the motivation comes from the inside out. God, what is it? What will it take? And I remember crying out about these kids. They were more concerned about who liked them and what kind of sneakers they wore and what was happening on Friday night. And so I remember crying out to the Lord. And what happened is a friend of mine gave me a DVD. It's called The Transformation um, Documentaries. I don't know if any of you have seen them or not. There's, a, there's hundreds of cities and communities that have been transformed by the power of God. I'm not talking about revival in church. Revival in church is when the body of Christ gets excited, sings a little louder, stays up a little later, and, uh, you know, hangs out a little more, eats a little more. It's revival. We all come together, we fellowship, we sing, and we eat. I'm not talking about revival. I'm not talking about people getting saved in the church. I'm talking about a community being transformed by the presence of God. I'm sorry, but I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know there was such a thing. And so I got a hold of one of these DVDs to a friend of mine, and I watched it, and it rocked my world. The community had been transformed. The government, the agriculture, the crime rate dropped. I mean, churches were loving on one another. No more de denominational barriers. I mean, it com completely changed a community. So much so that this one particular community, Alamoanga, Guatemala, it said as you entered into the city, Jesus Christ is Lord of Alamoanga. The report was that once a city of full of crime, full of injustice, full of abuse, alcoholism, all of this stuff, the, the ground did not produce fruit. The crime rate was high, bars on every corner. But when God came into the city, everything changed. No more bars. One chief of police, no one to arrest. 98% of the population born again. The land is producing fruit once again. Carrots the size of your forearm. Cabbage the size of a watermelon. And watching this, I just started weeping and I said, God, that's transformation. I didn't even know there was such a thing. And at that point, 1999, when I watched the first DVD, there was eight communities that had reported activity of the Holy Spirit to the point of being called they were in a process of transformation. Today there are over 350. Yeah. Come on. So in realizing what God wants to do in a community, it's not just about the church having a good time and a few people coming to Jesus and trying to keep them in the church and keep them entertained. Come on. It's, it's a radical transformation that begins first with us. And that's why in reading Isaiah chapter 6, I saw the Lord, yeah. and His train filled the temple. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I read the Bible, and I read stuff, and I go, yeah, His train filled the temple. Choo-choo, what's that mean? <laughs> his train filled the temple. So I got on a kick, and I said, I'm going to find out what this train is, because I don't get that. Is a train in the temple? So listen to this. In the Old Testament, when a king would send his men into battle, and that includes women, ladies, because in the kingdom of God, there's neither male nor female. So when he'd send his men into battle, after they defeated their enemy, the king would walk through the battleground and take for his men the spoils. But the greatest recognition for the king that had been victorious was signified when he would have a piece of the defeated king's robe cut off and then sewn to the bottom of the end of his own. For a king in the Old Testament times, the length of his robe would therefore be a sign or an indication of his greatness. The longer his robe, the more victories he had won and the more kings he had defeated. Isn't that awesome? So the train of his robe, you'll never sing that song again the same way. The train of his robe means all of the enemies that he defeated. A piece of their robe is cut off and sewn onto his. 
And he trains that so that all know he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. When you go into the streets, when you go into a community, when you go in, not just with prayer, yes, amen. Not just with worship, yes, amen. But with acts of compassion, with actually being the extended, tangible expression of Jesus Christ to that person. You are the ambassador of Christ and you are bringing the good news. And what happens is, when the enemy is defeated, the enemy is defeated, then that person's life is con converted to Christ. What happens is they become a part of the train of the Lord because the enemy of their soul was defeated. Amen. And now they're part of the kingdom of God. Amen? Now, you say, well, that's great. Okay, so how do you do that? Well, let me tell you a little bit about my journey. My journey began with, I didn't know how to do it either. And I said, God, I went to this, um, I, I went and got this DVD and I watched it. The next thing I did is I showed it to the young people. Friday night's our prayer time. It went from being, oh, we're praying and wins pizza, to we prayed for two hours, three hours. We worshiped. Kids were on the floor. Kids were repenting. They were getting a revelation of the Lord. Then we started training them. Do you know what I found? And I'm not speaking about you. Please hear me. Because if it, if, if it fits to you, then take, grab it. But I'm not speaking against or about anybody, okay? We don't know how to be real. We don't know how to be people. Once we become Christian, something bizarre happens to us. <laughs> All of a sudden, we don't know how to talk to somebody about their vocation, their job, or the weather, or anything else. Everything has to be spiritual. Do you know Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior because you don't you go to hell? And then if nobody wants to listen to you, no wonder why, um, they end up, you know, a religious fanatic and don't want anything to do with you. I read the Gospels. I read the life of Jesus. I read he talked to the woman in Samaria about water in a well. I read he talked to fishermen about fishing. I read he talked to farmers about farming. He talked to people about their vocation. He talked to people about their relationships. He talked to people about their hardships, their difficulties, their pain. He identified with them. He didn't try to bring them where he was going. He went to where they were. And that's what we're missing is that component. There was a time I brought out these people. She was a prostitute on the city, and her man, not married, 18 years together, prostituted her for his cocaine addict addiction. And what happened was, I know these people very well, saw them on the streets, saw her with big black eyes, saw him high, and these people, I just thought, God, what does it take for people like that to come to know the Lord? I can't quote a scripture verse to them. I can't bring them to the church. Most churches don't know what to do with people that smell smell like alcohol, Mom. smell like urine, smell like Mom. dirty bodies. Most people go, oh, ooh, and they move because they don't know what to do with them. But I want to tell you some of the most precious, beautiful gifts from God are out there on the streets. And the Lord is asking, does anybody see? Does anybody see beyond what they're doing to reach into where their hearts are and to begin to draw their hearts out so that they can come to know the Lord? I got news for you. When Jesus chose the twelve, none of them yet believed. He walked with them three and a half years and they were not yet believers. The only one that I even believe had a glimpse of who he was, was John. John the Baptist. And that's why John the Beloved had a relationship with Jesus where his head could rest on his chest and he would hear his heartbeat. He understood the Lord better than any of the other disciples. The other ones didn't get it. Peter in the garden, taking his sword, cutting off the ear of the centurion. And Peter, Jesus saying to Peter, those that use the sword perish by the sword, Peter. How many times he said, how long do I have to be with you and you still don't understand me? Don't you hear my heartbeat? Don't you see the concern that I have for those that are out there? Must you be so religious? 
Must you be so worried about drawing them to Christ the first conversation that you have? Is it about putting another notch in your belt because somebody came to the Lord and then three weeks later you have no idea who they are, where they are, and who cares? And the whole point of preaching the gospel is that we reach them in where they are. We go where they are. See, I love this. We often go out so we can say that we went. But what we need to do is begin to say we're going out so that he can come. See, he comes when we go. If we don't go, he doesn't come. For years and years, and I love worship. I'm a crazy worshiper. I love the Lord. I love to worship. I think my son-in-law is the best worship leader in the whole wide world. And I used to have him in my youth group, and man, we had some mad, crazy worship times. And then when I planted a church in Haverhill, of which we did, he was the worship leader for our church plant, and my daughter Bethany was the chief intercessor. And uh, when I lost them, I felt like I lost both my arms. And I said, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do here, but you're going to have to do something. Because if you planted this church, you're going to have to do something. Because it ain't going to fly without the other two wings. And uh, I, I am here to say we just celebrated six years anniversary. And God is adding to the fold. It's awesome. But what I want to say, what did I want to say? Where was I? Does anybody know? <laughs> Before I got off on you? <laughs> I'm your favorite worship leader. You go back yeah, to that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so anyway. I don't know where I was. Does anybody know? Before I... You go to Yes, he comes if we go. I don't know where I was going with that, but it sounded good, didn't it? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but this is what I've tried to do. I've tried to teach people how to be real. Don't be so worried about religious terminology. Let me just tell you, they don't get the religious terminology. They're not going to get it when you preach at them. And I know the Bible says go into all the world and preach the gospel. That I'm not negating that. But there's more to just preaching. It's giving your life. Paul said, I pour my life out for you as a, as a drink offering before the Lord. I give my life. I know what it was. I was going to take this couple out to dinner. She was a prostitute. And he was a cocaine addict. And what happened was, I took them out to a nice restaurant. I didn't take them out to Wendy's. I took them out to a nice restaurant. And as we sat there in the restaurant and we ordered and we are eating... He looks at me and he says, okay, so why'd you take us out to eat? And I said, because I care. He said, really? You have a message you want to share with us? You have something you want to tell us? I said, nope. I just want to talk to you about your life, about life on the streets. I want to learn. I'm posturing myself in a position I don't understand street life. I've never been homeless. I've never been in a situation that you guys have been in. I want to know. I want to understand you. I want to hear your story. I want to know what pain you live in. I want to know what you feel. I want to know what moves you. I want to know what bothers you. I want to know what you think about the church. I want to know what you think about God. It's really about you. What do you want to talk about? And he elbows her. He goes, you told me she was bringing us out to eat because she was going to preach us, teach us and accept Jesus. She goes, well, I don't know. That's what they do. <laughs> and the more I talk to people on the streets, you know what their interpretation of the church is? Yeah, they do a soup kitchen, but they make us pray before we eat. Because they want us to accept their Jesus, or we can't eat. I'm like, God, would you help me to help the church? Because you helped me. Can I help the church? Can we help the church? I don't know. And I said, guys, I'm sorry, because I am a part of the church. So your experiences with church is really on behalf of the people that I'm a part of the family. Would you forgive us for not caring about you, but for caring more that we preach to you? and that you accepted our Jesus. Would you forgive us? And they had tears, and I don't mean to cry, sorry, I'm like this. 
because scoffs come in handy. Um, I don't know how to explain it to you guys other than what God did in me, and I can't give that to you. He helped me to understand being natural, He can be supernatural through us. The more natural we are, the more relaxed we are, the more patient we are, the more we're willing to rest and trust in Him. If you're sharing with someone a gift or a, a food or whatever it might be, and they seem absolutely closed, let it alone. God is just using you to show an act of kindness that maybe is just getting a little bit in that somebody cares. It doesn't matter. We don't have to lead people to Christ. Do you know there was this one lady? She was, we called her the crazy Puerto Rican. And, um, because she was loco. And she was high on cocaine. And every time that I would go, do you remember Annette? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Am I telling the truth? It's crazy. <laughs> and every time I'd go to this place called the drop-in, because we'd keep it open and feed people and, and uh, give them day shelter. Every time I'd go to the drop-in, she'd come through the door like this. Bam! And she'd kick the door open, and the door would hit the wall, and she'd knock over a chair, or knock over a table, or pick a fight with somebody, and there was all this drama around her. And what happened was, I'd say, good morning, Annette, and she'd go on. And I just thought, you know what, until they see me believe Jesus, their response is to me, it can't be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, maybe you want to act up with me, sister, I ain't going to bother with you. It just, I, God got a hold of my heart. She's testing and she's pushing the boundaries. Just be who you are, regardless of the responses, be who you are. And so, year after year, I would just show up and be who I was, and because of Christ, not in my own, trust me, I wasn't born this way, and um, I would just be who I was in Jesus, and just loving her, and be patient with her. And finally, one day, she came to know the Lord. I got to lead her to the Lord. And I remember saying to Annette, what was all of that drama? What was going on? She said, all the Christians that ever came down here to do a meal or to do anything, she said, I learned that I can't trust them. They talked behind my back. They were here today, gone tomorrow. They didn't really care. It was all about the mission. It wasn't about the people. And if that's how they feel, then it's our responsibility to change that. Because God in heaven is waiting for his church to go on his behalf, to be an ambassador, a true representation of who Christ is. The more we relax, the more we rest in Him, the more we wait on Him. And I'm not talking about don't take action when I say wait. Don't be too anxious to make something happen with somebody. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Trust that if He gives you a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. I have found this to be true that most Christians are so petrified of the gifts of the Holy Spirit because they've either had some weird experience with it or some weirdo gave a wrong representation of it and everybody's like, whew, if that's what it is, I don't want none of that. Holy Spirit, I love you, but I don't like those gifts too much because they're really weird. See, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are so that we can be effective in ministry. So what happens is if we end up pushing away the gifts of the Holy Spirit, well, we don't need that. You're saying, God, I don't need your Holy Spirit and what he's equipped me with. I'll do it on my own just fine. Thank you very much. You need words of knowledge. You need words of wisdom. You need to know when to talk, when to shut up. You need to know which verse to speak. A, a word fitly spoken in, in due season is like apples of silver in settings of gold. And or maybe I misquoted that, but you get the point. But the bottom line is this. We have to hear from the Holy Spirit. You have to. You have to. You can't go without the equipping of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we get no fruit. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no presence. We need the presence of God. We have to humble ourselves and say, Holy Spirit, I need you. I can't do this on my own. Time and time again I pray and say, God, I don't know what I'm doing. 
I don't know how to do this. Nobody has showed me. Nobody has walked with me. Nobody has taught me. And then I open the word and it says in 1 John, you have no need of, the, of a teacher for the anointing teaches you all things. And I'm like, okay, well that's not a good excuse. I got nobody to teach me. The Holy Spirit's teaching me. How did he uses a video, the transformation video. Then the next thing that happened in my life that was so awesome, one of the men on the transformation video, he's at a conference in Utica, New York, and it's called a Compassion Conference. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the Alamawonga guy. This is the guy that got together with just a few people. A few people. The Bible says it took 12 men that turned the world upside down. 12 men turned the world upside down. That's all it takes. It takes only a few. I saw in this video a few, maybe 10, 12 people in a room, crying out to God. Not American kind of prayers. Oh, Lord, we really need you bad. America's going to hell in a handbasket. Lord, would you come to America? Boy, boy would you come to the White House? Would you come to the, the courthouse? Would you come to all the houses of structure? That's awesome. Pray it. Amen. But desperate prayers are much different than that. Desperate prayers are when there is a Idi Amin. There's a ruler that's about to kill you and your family because you name the name of Jesus. Desperation is when your streets are covered with blood and there's war and there's bombs going off. Desperation is when your children are being murdered in front of you. You don't pray nice little prayers. You pray messy prayers that are very emotional. And I know we're not supposed to be led of emotion, but let me tell you, it's part of being human. And so they're very emotional. They're very passionate. They're very real and they're very big. And they don't really care what they sound like. Passionate prayers. They don't really care what the next door neighbor thinks of them. That they're trying to be quiet. I love what Daniel did. Open the window and worship the Lord. You know, don't hide who you are. And I was, I was alone in the building, in the building that we're presently in, looking to move into our new building. I didn't know anybody else was there. There's a guy working on the building. And, I'm all, and this is how I'm praying. God, if you don't show up, I'm in trouble. If you don't come, God, there is no hope for this city. There's no hope for me. There's no hope for these people. Without your manifest presence, God, it is a dead end. It's going nowhere. So, God, if you don't show up, I'm in trouble. And, I mean, I'm, this is how I talk to God. And this guy's out there, whoo, there's somebody here. I'm like, oh, I had no idea. I said, well, now you're going to fly on the wall. You know how I pray. But, I, but desperate prayers from desperate people are very different cries than just American church <coughs> prayers. And I'm not picking on America. Trust me, I'm an American and I love the church. But our prayers are so pitiful. They're so lacking any passion or any power. It, when we pray for the lost, oh God, let the lost come. And I'm not criticizing. Please hear my hat. I'm trying to show you the difference between being religious in our prayers and being passionate. Jesus was moved with compassion. I love how the word compassion has passion in it, and I use the first three letters, Christ, others, and myself, putting Christ and others before myself. If I do that and have passion for people, compassion for people, it was when Jesus was moved with compassion that virtue left him. When he was moved with compassion, somebody got touched. And it, the compassion expresses itself through passion. There's a passion that Jesus had. I'm sorry, but when he went into the, the temple and the money changers were there, I'm sorry, but he displayed some passion. And you know, it's true that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But there is an anger, a righteous anger. 
And righteous anger is not to get angry at people, but angry at the situation. I get angry at addiction. I get angry at corruption. I get angry at injustice. I get angry at crime. I get angry when I see children mishandled, neglected, and abused. I don't direct my anger toward the people. I let that anger come out not at anyone, but in the presence of God, angry at the situation, motivates me to pray such a way that I'm not just feeling a feeling that I can forget about tomorrow, but that feeling motivates me to do something about it. See, there has to be a motivation. If you only feel something for a moment and you can forget about it tomorrow, it didn't touch you. It was just an emotion for that moment. But if you feel the passion of the Lord, which comes with emotion, that passion motivates you. I'm doing today, 12 years later, what I started in the Lord 12 years ago. Not because somebody motivates me. Not because I have someone to give an account to for what I did today. I have a given account to the Lord. I'm motivated by the compassion of Jesus Christ. And when I see people, and I see things, and I, my eyes have been opened. See, as Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. My eyes are open. And when my eyes have been opened, and I see, and I hear, and I feel... I then am compelled to go. Because he says here, who will go for us? Who can I send? Here I am, Lord, send me. Yeah. And it's not a mission that's an event. It's a lifestyle. It's the yeah. lifestyle of Jesus. Yeah. It's wherever you are. It's not just on the streets of Harvard. It's when you go to the dentist office. Yeah. It's when you go to the grocery store. It's when you sit in class. It's when you go shopping, wherever it is. It's wherever you are. Acts of compassion, stopping for a minute, looking beyond what your, your list says to pick up, and being sensitive to what's around you and the needs that are there. I was in church at our house of prayer, and I was praying this one morning. And again, I'm not, this doesn't mean negative about others. Please hear my heart. I'm not trying in any way to give a negative view. I just, I'm trying to explain to you when the Lord grips your heart, doesn't matter. Nothing else matters and what you feel and see in that moment, knowing that God wants to use you then. We're in the house of prayer. I'm looking out our windows, and I see this mom grab this little kid and shake them. And there's two other little ones there. And everybody in the house of prayer is, Oh! 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 I'm seeing two worlds, and they're worlds apart. I'm seeing this mother in her distress, and I don't justify what she did at all. But I see her in distress, and I hear Christians disgusted with her. Amen. But something happened inside of me, and I said, that woman is in such distress, she needs help. I was moved beyond the disgust into outside saying, Mama, is there something I can do to help you? Obviously, you're in distress. She said, I, this one's sick with a fever, this one this, and this one won't walk with me, and i got to get to the doctor's appointment, and I have nowhere to get there, and I have no money for a cab. I said, I'm so sorry. Can I get my car? i got car seats. I'm a grandmother. i got car seats in my car. Can I take you to the doctor's? And she said, please, that would be so wonderful. And I pulled my car up. I got the kids some popsicles, put them in the car, got them to the doctor, prayed for them, not out loud, but prayed for them while I was taking them. And I looked at her and I said, if there's anything that we can do to help you in your distress, I want you to know, here's my card. We're called Somebody Cares. And we care. I care about the distress that you're in. This is our location. We help with groceries. There's things that we, can, we have for the kids, some clothes, if there's anything we can do to help you. That lady ended up coming to our church. I didn't preach to her about Jesus. I met her greatest need in that moment. She was in distress. It's that simple, guys. It's that simple. 
There was a woman under the, under the bushes. She had been sleeping there overnight. It was cold. It was in November. Daryl knew who I'm talking about, Donna Giroux. And Donna Giroux was known in the city of Haverhill as the biggest drunk in the city of Haverhill. And I went, she was under the bushes, and I said to her, when was the last time you ate? And she said, I don't know, it's been three days I've been under here, I don't know the last time I ate. She was inebriated. And so I went to McDonald's, I bought her a hot breakfast, I brought her out from underneath, and we sat on a bench, and I cut it up, she couldn't even feed herself. And as I'm feeding her, she's got tears coming down her eyes. She said, who are you? And I said, well, my name is Marlene Yo, and I'm a Christian. She said, oh. Christians want to help, but they don't always do too good. I said, what do you mean by that? She said, lots of people want to feed me, but nobody would ever pick up the fork and give it to me. She said, they just lay it down and leave me. She said, they didn't know that when I'm in this state, I can't feed myself. And I said, I'm so sorry. Taking that extra moment, and it's not, I'm not doing this, look at this, okay? God did this in me, because I would have passed that woman by. 15 years ago. I wouldn't have given her the right time of day. I probably would have thought, they just like being like that. Oh well, somebody's got to be like that. Jesus said, they're always going to be with you, the poor. I mean, I could have done whatever I do and did. I came from a family that was a lot like Archie Bunker's family. Anybody else here come from a family like that? So, I'm giving testimony of what the Lord's done, and that's my prayer tonight, that He will touch our hearts in such a way that it's not a duty, it's not a routine, it's not an event, but we see from the word of the Lord, this is a lifestyle. And I want to close out with Isaiah 58. It's a very familiar verse that I know that probably everybody in this room is familiar with, but I want to read it to you. I'm going to start with verse 6, Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is this not the fast that I've chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free? If we're not fasting, we're not praying, and we're not weeping for those that are out on the streets, there's no anointing. See, the anointing comes when our heart is broken. The anointing comes when the presence of the Lord makes real to us the condition of the souls of men, that they are without hope. And we are the expression of Christ to bring them hope and to give them a hope. <clears throat> this is what he wants to do. Loose the bonds, undo heavy burdens, and let the oppressed go free. And that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? Now I know this much. It's not wise to bring home an addict, a thief, to your home. I know a lot of horror stories of people that have brought them to their homes. I'm not suggesting that you bring them to your home, but there is the house of the Lord. And there are, I believe, that there are homes that God wants to give to churches, that it can be a house, a home, where you can bring the lost to be able to come off the streets, to have food, to have shelter. We had a, what we called the discipleship house. We had a house for men and a house for women. We brought 13 people in off the streets. Because my husband, I'm, I am married to a former lieutenant on a police department, and he says to me, you bring those people home that you serve, and that's, you'll be homeless. So, I don't have that option. So, when I would read the word of the Lord, I said, all right, God, I can't bring them home because my husband used to lock them up, okay? But I can't bring them home, but God, your house, there has to be some place to bring them. There has to be. We, we as the church have to come to recognize this is a mandate from the Lord. 
to care for the widows, the orphans, to care for the homeless, there has to be homes. There has to be. And it has to be by the church because government-run homes are not providing the spiritual nourishment that they need to be able to be um, discipled. And so I really believe with all my heart that churches in a city need to get together and have shelter, have homes for the people that are in distress. That's what I believe is the heart of the Lord. <clears throat> but it says here, then your light shall break forth. Um, excuse me, i got to go back up. Verse 7. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning and your healing shall spring forth speedily. Let me just share with you. It says here, don't hide from your own flesh. We had a discipleship house. In that discipleship house, my own biological bro brother, brother of fl flesh and blood, same mother and father, he was homeless because of mental illness, because of addiction, because of choices, because of his lifestyle. And here's my own brother, my own brother. And I said, God, thank you that we have a discipleship house that my brother can be a part of and, and live in. His mental illness took a turn for the worse. He ended up very manic. He ended up in a situation where I had to call the police on my own brother. It was a horrible, horrible, tragic situation, but I had to. I can't go into details of what all he was doing. I can't take the time of it tonight. It doesn't really matter. And two of my leaders, part of my leadership team, were there. He was out in the yard, and uh, the, the discipleship house, it's a long story, but there were five children that lived in another part of this. We had multiple apartments. And uh, one of my leadership team, his kids were there, and he said, my children are petrified to go out in the yard because my brother was out there. He was picking up picnic tables and throwing them. He, the strength of this small framed man was just demonic is what it was. And so when I went out to try to reason with him, I said, if you do not come in and if you do not get on your meds and if we can't get you help and you won't let me take you to the hospital, you can't go back in the house. You, I'm not going to let you in. And he threatened me, and all this horrible stuff happened. And so what happened when I called the police, took five police, maced him twice, broke his arm, broke ribs, not because they were being violent to him, but because he was so violent they were trying to restrain him. That will let you know the magnitude of what this young man, or young, he's in his 50s, what this man was going through. And I, as his sister, had to stand there and watch this whole thing, because I had to call the police. And I cried out, I said, God... My own flesh. I didn't hide myself from my own flesh. My own brother is in need. My own brother's homeless. My own brother is in a place where he needs you, Lord. And it felt to me like I couldn't help my own brother. And I felt like such a failure. You know, you're going to feel like a failure when you go out there. There's going to be people that don't change. There's going to be people that don't come through. There's going to be people that you can't help. And that's okay. You're not the savior of the world. Everybody's timeline in their life is different. I have to tell you at this point, my brother is doing very well, has his own place now, and he is on his medication, and um, he has not yet made a decision to follow Jesus, but he's doing very well. And he, he thanks me for what I did for him, as painful as it was. But I share that with you, that painful time, not because of any reason other than you have to know you, you're not the answer but you are the ambassador that carries the answer. And if you're okay with not succeeding, it's all right. You have to be okay with that. It's not a matter of a success story, although there will be success stories. 
There's going to be many trials, many difficulties. The very people that you try to help may turn against you, say all men are evil against you, accuse you, slander you. That's happened to me. It still is happening. You give everyone that you can your best, and they turn around and they say horrible things about you. That's a reality, because people are demonized. And so you have to come to the place, and you have to be all right with that. Otherwise, you're going to end up saying, you know what? Yeah, I don't see any fruit, and nobody's changed, and that's it. I must not be called. No, you're called. There's just a long season before you see the fruitfulness. I know that um, this one man on a Christmas outreach day that we were uh, serving food, he comes in the door the last 10 minutes before we're ready to shut the door. Food's all packed up. Everything's, everybody's gone. We're mopping the floor. And he comes in and he goes, Molly, yo! And I said, yes, sir. He's clean cut, shaven. He's got a turtleneck on and a cross, gold cross, and a suit jacket, a pair of jeans. He said, I came all the way here from New Report today to thank you on Christmas Day. And I said, oh, thank me for what? He said, you don't remember me, but I was homeless. He said, my hair was down to here. Didn't have my teeth in. I was an addict. He said, I ended up going to jail because I stole and got caught. And he said, while I was in jail, he said, I, I found Jesus. And he said, what happened is, and when I was in jail and saying, God, how did this happen that I found the Lord? How did this happen? He said, he brought your face before me and told me that this lady prayed for you because I put it on her heart to love people. And you, that's how it came about, when people pray. So he came back that day to thank me. And I don't remember him. I didn't recognize him. And that was probably six or seven years after the time that I had seen him. You never know how God's going to use your prayers, use your life, use your acts of kindness to touch somebody, and they'll change. Another man was in jail, and he served over 30 days in the hole. While he was in the hole, he just repented before God. And the Lord said, he said, God, why can't I see your love? Why didn't I ever see your love before now? He said, I saw your face, and I saw things that you did for me over the years, and the Lord said, there was my love, there was my love. He got out of jail, the first night out of jail, I almost ran him over with my car, I didn't see him. He was standing behind me, and I was backing up, and I said, Paul, what are you doing? He said, I just got out of jail, and you were the first place that I came to to say thank you. I said, for what? He said, when I did 30 days in the hole, the Lord showed me your face and what you did for me. Now let me tell you what I did, and I don't advertise for you to do this. He was walking across the street with a transvestite. And I knew that they were heading for the bathroom at the gas station. I had a young lady with me, and I said, listen, sit still. If I don't come out, call the cops. <laughs> I went, they went in the bathroom, and I banged on the door. And I, I yelled this man, you don't know. I said, Paul, Paul. And he goes, what going on? So he opens the door, and he said, what are you doing, crazy lady? And I said, I'm here to tell you, don't do it. Don't do it. This could take your life. This is very serious consequences. This could harm you in your spirit, harm your body. It could harm you. I care about you. Don't do it, Paul. Please, don't do it. He said, you crazy lady. Slams the door in my face. I get in the car, and the girl I was with, it was Shundi. Shundi's like, whoa, mama, yo, what you doing? I said, I said, honey, I just felt compelled. I saw that happen. I felt compelled. I just needed to tell Paul that he was loved, that God has something better for his life. And you know what? When, I, when he was in jail, those were some of the episodes that God showed him. That was his love reaching out to Paul. I didn't preach at him. I said, there's too much at stake. Your life is worth more than this. Please don't do it. Please don't do it. God has a better plan for you. Paul found the Lord. When we got out of jail, he came to tell me. I found the Lord. I mean, those are the kind of stories, guys. Sometimes it takes years. 
Sometimes it takes months. Sometimes it might be you're the one that God gets to um, give you the fruit, but it's not because of you. You just happen to be at the right place at the right time, and Grandma and Susie and everybody else down the pike prayed for that person for 10 years, and you just get to be there at the time that the, it's the fullness of time, and they come to the Lord. Whatever season, whether God's called you to plow up the fallow ground, whether He's called you to plant the seed, whether He's called you to water the seed, or whether you are the one that He ends up using you to bring the increase, which belongs to Him. All of it is part of the process. Me, I'm a plower. I have to go into the fallow ground. I have to go into the rocks. I have to go into the roots. I have to do dirty work. I don't get to always pick the fruit. I don't get to always see the results. But I know that I know that I know that what I'm doing is pleasing the Lord. I just want to offer you an opportunity, if you would like, same anointing that God put upon my life. And I'm going to tell you, it'll break your heart. It'll break your heart. If you're not ready for that, that is no condemnation, please. If you're not ready for that, you don't want this anointing. If you want to go on a trip, missions trip, and you want to go to a third world country and help build an orphanage, amen, go do it. That's awesome. But to be a missionary to the streets of America is one of the toughest jobs you'll do. And I'll tell you why. In a foreign land, you can take $10,000 and build an orphanage in Europe. Hero. It'll cost you $10,000 just to throw a block party in America. You can go to another nation and you'll see signs and wonders. Miracles happen. Blind eyes open. Even people raised from the dead because of the anointing that they cried out for. And when you step into that anointing, you think somehow that's your anointing. It's not yours. You stepped into it because of those that cried out, those that shed their blood, those that paid the price. See, in America, we're not willing to pay the price for that kind of an anointing. We want easy street. We want results. We want to see great things, but we're not willing to pay the price. And I've come to the conclusion in my life that if I never see all of the manifestation of what I believe is my inheritance, because it says in Hebrew, some died never seeing the promise, but knowing that there's a greater promise. But I know this, I'm laying a foundation. I'm laying a foundation. And I'm imparting to those that are under my covering and under my leadership the heart that God put in me. And I'm trusting that they will do greater things than I've done. Just like Jesus said about us, you will do greater things because I go to the Father. The double portion anointing. The next generation of leadership in my church and in my ministry will do better than me. Because I plowed up the fallow ground. That's my gift. That's my job. I wish I could pick another gift. An easy one, maybe. But that's not my lot in life. And so I'm willing, and I've submitted to, and I accept. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. So if you want that anointing that's going to break your heart, an anointing of intercession that will give you sleepless nights, give you a pain in the heart, make you feel sometimes like the burden is more than you can carry, the road is a little bit harder than what you bargained for. As I said, if it's not your time, no condemnation. You have to know it's time. For those of you that would like me to pray for you, you can stay where you're seated and just I'll come around and ask God to break them. Why don't we do this? Why don't we just, if you are feeling prompted and you just want some prayer, your heart's just been... 
kind of sparked up a little bit envisioned. When we just build a little altar right here, those of you who don't want prayer, just stand to the sides. But those of you who do, just come right up here and we'll just start laying hands on you. Just come on up here. I know it can get awkward. It's a house, but we love it. Those of you who are not receiving prayer, just extend your hands for just a little bit as we pray for these and join with us. Don't be just spectating, but get involved with us. Amen.